Hmm. Friday night, you're all alcoholics and you're all sober. Man, ain't this something? Yeah. Mr. Ripley should see this. I'm Tom from Alcoholic. I've been in uh, meetings in a lot of our different states, and uh, this is probably one of the most gracious places I have been accepted. I just want to thank you. If you excel in anything, the one I know about is you're gracious to guys from out of state. I know that because that's my experience here tonight with you. I am an alcoholic. I am not a problem drinker. Not a problem drinker. I am what you call an answer drinker. Life was a problem. Alcohol was an answer. That makes me an answer drinker. There is only one problem with being an answer drinker. I ran out of answers before I ran out of problems. <laughs> there I'm stuck. I needed another answer. I didn't expect to find the answer in Alcoholics Anonymous. I thought I'd find it in some type of cerebral exercise, you know, and I didn't. I had a wonderful time drinking. Oh my God. Alcohol has taken this drunk to places that National Geographic's never seen. <laughs> it was a trip. <laughs> and that's the truth, Dick. <laughs> it was a trip. And I loved it. I know you guys and gals have been in meetings where you hear some person come up here and say, Oh, I picked up a drink and I was an instant alcoholic. You know, I can cry. It's so sad to miss all the fun. You know, I think it's like getting pregnant without having sex. There's something missing. <laughs> I just had a hell of a lot of fun. I just had a wonderful time. But as I said, the problems kept coming and I'm all out of answers. I got to you guys as a result of some direct hits. A near miss, don't do anything for this drunk. A bullet could whiz past my ear a quarter inch away and I will admire the hum. What was that, Tom? C sharp. <laughs> yeah, right. The one that gets my attention hits me right between the eyes and puts me down on the ground. Now you can talk to me. How's my attention? What are your direct hits, Tom? Well, I was married for 25 years. Obviously a very patient woman. <laughs> and I wish I could say something about her. That, uh, But in 25 years of marriage and more than 20-some years of being divorced, uh, I have no negative comments to make about that woman. Absolutely none. And that's the truth. I had a lot of guilt about being divorced. I'm, I'm one of nine kids, Irish, Catholic, Baltimore, you can figure, you know. <laughs> the rest is, you know, stamp it out, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of guilt about that, uh, particularly culturally, and I thought it was a sin to become divorced and all that. And uh, I no longer believe that, but only that's my opinion. And... Uh, what helped me with the guilt complex about that divorce business was the ninth step in good sponsorship. So if you have anybody here tonight has a similar problem after the meeting, I will stand up there for a while unless anybody throws ripe fruit and I'm going to leave. <laughs> I'll just be available if you want to talk about that. 
So that's a direct hit. Well, Tom, you're divorced. Wave bye-byes. So much stuff was being mad on my life at this period. I was waving bye-byes with two hands. No line. You know, everything going. Didn't even need a line. It was going. Oh, we later became pen pals, you know. She sent me a bill. I sent her a check. That's how that was. <laughs> it's been like that since Eve, so don't none of you guys get excited. It ain't going to change but Tuesday. It seems reasonably fair to me. That's a direct hit. I started off pushing doorbells for a company, and pretty soon I thought it was because I was intelligent that was wrong. It was because I was excessive that was right. I became the vice president, not a vice president, but a vice president of that company quite young. And I could have retired when I was 34 years old. In my 29th year with that company, I got fired. I owned 18% of the stock of the company. They can't do that. Yes, they can. How do you know that they did it to me? Okay. <laughs> my experience. It may not be yours, but it's mine. I didn't get a letter of reprimand in my personnel file. That's Kleenex material. Here, blow. <laughs> You're a talented guy, Tom. A lot of companies can use a man of your talent. We are no longer one of those companies. And we'd like to have your keys at 2 o'clock this afternoon. Bye-bye, two hands going on. Direct hit. Made a lot of money. More than was healthy for me. I was in sole belief that lack of money was my problem. I was an eight-year-old kid sitting on white marble steps in a row house in South Bomber, snot-nosed kid, you know. I know none of you guys didn't do that stuff, but I did. Hey. And uh, I didn't want to go to church on Sunday morning because you had to kneel down with your class and go to communion. I had holes in the bottom of my shoes and I had paper stuck in them. I was too proud to kneel down in front of my classmates. I'd rather you think I was an eight-year-old sinner, much more glamorous. I know what you think. I said, snot those kid with papers. Yeah. <laughs> Money was going to solve his problem. So I got a lot of it. A lot of it. The hole in the soul stayed. Man and merchandise came and went. But the hole in the soul stayed. For me. See, that's how it was for me. I went stone broke. My address before my last address, uh, I had neighbors like Jim Palmer and Brooks Robinson, some, some Baltimore sports, you know, guys. And I lived in that kind of a neighborhood. I thought I was a big shot. You know, that was also an overestimation of my abilities. And uh, my address after that was the last bridge that you cross over before going into Fort McHenry, where the Star Spangled Banner is written. It was sort of a historic address. But they didn't deliver mail there. It was a really a railroad bridge, but it was. But as bridges go, it was a nice bridge. It was two-decker, you know what I mean? Come up and... And those of you who have are con contemplating bridge dwelling, I'll see you about that after. Do I have some oh, bridge etiquette I could suggest with you that may help you your stay with us uh, under the bridge be a bit more comfortable, you know, uh, as much as can be in the Mid-Atlantic States in January and February. <laughs> so, uh, a brief story on that. Always get as close to the roadbed as you can to a bridge in order to stay dry. And when you have those nice bridges, the double-deckers, you know, terraced up, the wide bridges, uh, even though the lower area may be 
empty, do not use it because even though it may be a very dry day, uh, other alcoholics are notorious for careless plumbing habits. Uh, so dryness is not guaranteed by the weather. <laughs> That's probably the best way I can explain it. That's rule one under bridge etiquette. It's sort of like picking out booze off a shelf. Go to the top shelf. You can remember that, can't you? That's it. It's sort of like that. That's where I lived. One from a very fashionable neighborhood. You got a place there called, you got a Shaker Heights here? In the Cleveland area? East of Cleveland or something? Yeah, something like that. Very nice. I was up living under a bridge. Went broke. On the way up, I, um, I, I didn't deal with individuals. I didn't have the heart to do it. I dealt only with corporations and companies. I was like a shark. I was like a shark. Okay? And I thought I was intelligent. I wasn't. I was excessive. But I stayed on top of that business, and I knew it, and I worked anywhere from 40 to 100 hours a week. I didn't care what it took in order to get the job done. I knew singleness of purpose before I came to you. Best thing I can tell you, because of success, I thought I was brilliant. I became arrogant. I became careless. So on the way up, I was a shark. And on the way down, I was bait. That's exactly what happened. Exactly. The numbers didn't change, only the plus and minus sign changed. That was all. The numbers stayed about the same. <laughs> That's how it was. Came to in a great big old room. I didn't know what it was. It turns out it was a hospital. And down the end of that room was like big double windows. And there was a person silhouetted by the daylight in the windows. And I came to, and I didn't know where I was. And this person starts to approach me. A very big person. Not just like, big. Boom, boom, boom. And this person starts to thunder towards me. And this person had a, looked like a dress on. I said, that cannot be a woman. Not as big as this woman. Well, as she thundered closer, it was a woman. I later called her Mr. Nurse. Mr. Nurse approached me and said, what's your problem, Buster? Buster? Did she know who in the heck she was talking to? And I used to tell her what a fine education I had at Johns Hopkins University. And I told her what a big shot I would, what she used to be. And Mr. Nurse told me that she was impressed, but not a whole lot. And I went on to explain to her the nature of my problem. And my nature of the problem was very simple. There was no knob on my side of the door. And Mr. Nurse went on to explain to me that this was a general hospital and that I was nuts. Now she skipped the child within and all the other stuff and got right to the point and said that you are nuts. I think that's what they mean by deflation of ego. Now, since Mr. Nurse was bigger than me and had all the keys and had an attitude that did not invite conversation on the subject, I had to accept it. See, it was that simple. You men and women know that's only the outside stuff. And there are scars that come and they sting and they maim, but they do heal. I'm going to touch lightly gray-haired guys in Baltimore don't usually touch on this stuff, but I do. I'm to an age now where I really don't care what I think. 
it's suspect anyway. So <laughs> I remember looking into the eyes of people who loved me. And they trusted me beyond and forgave me beyond a reasonable series of events. Far beyond. There was no arguing. There was no discussion. Long beyond that. Nothing was even said. But the sound was deafening without a word being said. And I looked in her blue eyes and they just missed it over. And the noise was tremendous. It said, how could you? And I murmured in my heart, I do not know. I do not know. The promises that I broke to people whose only flaw was to love me is the measure of my guilt and betrayal of love. And then that, the, the, the dagger plunged in my heart, gave such a violent twist, I was stunned in the silence and paralyzed into inaction. I couldn't even think of a lie. Couldn't think of anything. I was numbed. And after about 30 days, I made a promise to a God I neither believed in nor trusted. I didn't want to tell anybody else about it. I was going to stop. I was tired of hurting so many people. I just kept it between me and this God. And I broke that promise too. And that is the measure of my shame. When I got to you people, it was August 14, 1980. I was divorced, fired, broke, nuts, crushed by guilt, shredded by shame, laying on the sidewalk of life, and I rolled off into the gutter. That's the condition I was in when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I was given the greatest gift an alcoholic like me can receive. I was given a great gift of desperation. My first sponsor was Ronald McDonald. When I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was willing to turn my will in and life over to Ronald McDonald. That's the kind of shape I was in. I did not come to here to argue theology or philosophy. Ronald McDonald was all right. Thank God for the wonderful gift of desperation. For in my case, my desperation was the father of my willingness to follow simple directions. I was in AA at least six months before I found out you could leave. Nobody told me you could leave. I thought you had a right to the president of AA, you know, and get a letter of whatever. Nobody told me that kind of stuff, so I stayed. It wasn't my idea to stay here. I'm in AA. Boom, boom. <laughs> Go over there. Okay. Most spiritual words. I can say the Lord's Prayer in four languages. Most spiritual words I've ever learned. My sponsor's name is Wally. He just celebrated his 44th anniversary. He's 84. He looks like he's about 65, and he moves like he's about 45. In January, that old sucker went down to Belize, or was it British or Honduras? Belize. 
What do you think he goes down there? There's some missionary work for his, for his church. Uh, it took his wife for 56 years with him because she wanted help. <laughs> These are my models. These are people who show me what to do. He ain't much on telling, but he's heck on wheels on showing. Demonstrating. Program of attraction, not promotion. I'm attracted to him for 25 years. I thought me being a Hopkins man and him being a dropout truck driver, you know, Greg knows about them truck driver guys, you know. I could over, you know, con him. I've been trying to con my sponsor off and on for 25 years, and my report to you is I have never successfully pulled it off. That doesn't mean I stopped trying. Don't, I'm not a quitter. But my report to you is no success for the first 25. <laughs> so if you're contemplating something, at least have a plan that exceeds 25 years. <laughs> Get ready, you know what I mean? Yeah. My sponsor has never accused me of lying, although I've lied to him. Gentle. Tom? Yeah, Wally. I suggest you narrow the gap between you and the truth. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> How nice. My sponsor is the kind of guy, you, you ever meet people tell you to, to go to, I can't say hell, can I? I uh, heck, I'll say heck. Well, I can't because I can't say hell, you know. So, some people will tell you to go to heck. Okay? And you're angry with them because they're angry people and you want to punch them. My sponsor's the kind of guy I tell you to go to heck and you'll run home and pack. <laughs> you know what it is? You know what I finally found out what it is? After I asked him, I tried to figure it out for 10 years, I failed. I had a lot of bad answers, you know. I know you never had those bad answers, of course. <laughs> but I did. And uh, the absence of malice. When my sponsor says anything to me that I consider negative, there is no malice. None. His rule between me and him is, Tom, I'd rather step on your toes than stand on your grave. I understand that. Very, very sweet and simple and to the point. You have to keep it that way for me. I told you about saying the spiritual words. And the spiritual words I've ever said is, Okay, Wowie. Get in the car, Tom. Okay, Wowie. Read two pages of the big book every day, Tom. Don't go 10 days and read 20 pages. How did he know that I was thinking of doing that? How do they know? I ain't got a clue. I sponsor a lot of guys. And they come to me with the same thing. And I, you would think that when I pull it off, I would by this time know. Well, I don't know how I do it either. And I think it's none of my business. So since it's none of my business, I'm just going to leave it alone. Have you noticed when you're here a long time, you, you sort of like know less, you know, and it bothers you for a while. You feel like semi-naked. And then when you're here just a little while longer, you come to find out you're comfortable semi-naked because you really don't have to know anything. Does that mean I can walk around in total ignorance? No, I would like to have such a license. 
but you guys won't give me that. See? I cannot walk around in wanton ignorance. Wally, the Zen truck driver, don't you tell him on me, I don't call him Zen truck driver to his face. I wouldn't dare do that to my sponsor. Be gentle as he is. I love that guy. I love that guy. I had four years of theology taught by good priest. I probably wasn't ready to hear. But when the Zen truck driver showed up, I understood. I don't know how or why. It's none of my business either. The older I get, my business gets less and less. <laughs> I also notice that my stress gets less and less. If you want to have a lot of stress, be in charge of a lot of stuff. If you want to have little stress, be in, be in charge of very little. If you want to have no stress, don't be in charge of nothing. The way to be in charge of nothing, I found, I went to Wally. Wally, I'm living life on life's terms. My God, that sounds socially acceptable. Oh, it even sounds semi-intelligent. You know, enough to make you in trouble. He says, life has no terms, Tom. Electricity, just as soon, you know, heat up your toast or heat your coffee or fry your fanny in pet prison. Electric electricity does what electricity does. Water is wet regardless of how you use it. <laughs> you don't do life on life's terms. How do I do life, Wally? See, why don't you try doing life on God's terms? He's much more gentle on you than you could even possibly be gentle with yourself. And I said the spiritual words, Okay, Wally. <laughs> so that's what I do. I do okay, Wally. We're going to do the steps, Tom. Well, Wally, I want to do, do an in-depth study group. I was trying to impress Wally. Bad news. Wally's not impressed. The only thing I think is impressed Wally is his wife and God. I'm not sure which order he has. <laughs> He's not impressed. There's nothing to study in Alcoholics Anonymous. He told me that. How can I do something if I don't understand it? <clears throat> he says, follow me. You don't have to understand it. You remind me of a friend of mine. He was trying to get to Pittsburgh with his truck for three days. He was half drunk and all that crap. He told all kinds of maps and geolocators. You know, he couldn't make it. You know, while he did, he found another guy in his truck stop who lived in Pittsburgh, who was going home, and he said to this first guy, Harry, follow him. <laughs> Don't even need a man. But make sure he's going to Pittsburgh, or make sure he's going towards recovery. I'm going to touch on something I think that in my area, I'm not sure about yours, but I don't think we're unique. I believe that sobriety is the answer for drunkenness. It is not the total answer for alcoholism. I believe that sobriety coupled with recovery is the answer for alcoholism. I further believe, and this is only my opinion, this does not come from anybody with any sense in AA, and that includes me. 
I believe that just because we have a spiritual awakening that we stay awake. I don't think so. I think we get here, we get the wrinkles out of our gut, and we go back to materialistic values. After all, those of you who try to live by spiritual values, you're a majority in the value system. How do you maintain one day at a time spiritual awakeness, God consciousness? How is the best way to do it? That peculiar version of the big book that I have says, practical experience shows that nothing, that means no other thing, that means 18 meetings a day and all that other crap. No other thing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with others. Not when I have time in my busy life to fit one guy or one girl in. Intensive means in first place. Focus on the plight of that man. And because I'm hard-headed, Bill throws in the closer. This works when other activities fail. <laughs> I've been praying 26 hours a day. Get off your knees and off your ass. Get, off, get on your feet and go and get somebody. He don't want to get served. That's not your business. Your business is to offer it. That's all. Your business is not to stick around and see that they accept it. You offered it. That's it. Period. He don't want it. So what? He knows where it is. What happens? What do I think happens in this working with others? I can tell you what I think happens. You go to a prison, you talk, you take a meeting in there, right? You plant a seed. The guy comes out of prison, he sees you, runs around with you a while. You start to take him through the steps, he gets the four. He's going to join you in step 30. And then he finds a little sweetie pie. It's got teeth and all. <laughs> Yeah, she does. I know her. Right? Now he can't come to meetings anymore. He's busy, you know. He's getting on with his life. If you want to call that life, it's okay with me. So he goes out and he gets drunk. Dick runs into him in a treatment center. Dick talks to him about the steps, his experience with recovery. The guy gets out of the nut house, comes to save Dick. Dick takes him through five, six, and gets him eight and nine. The guy starts to balk at nine. A lot of us balk at nine. We don't really get the full force and effect of five until you really get well into nine. That's my experience. So, What happens? The seed that he planted, Dick waters. That's what happens. Dick don't know that you planted the seed. You don't know that he watered it. All of a sudden, now he wants to go to night school because they're going to offer him a promotion. The things that money will buy becomes very attractive to him now. So now, 
he winds up in jail again. My friend Craig, he's over there. He carries the message into the jail. Guy comes out, goes with Craig and gets sober. What happens? That's all Craig did was take the seed that he planted and dick watered and moves it into the sunlight of the spirit where it takes hold and flourishes. So we don't know whether we're planting, watering, or moving into the sunlight, but for God's sake, do something. <laughs> what happens is not my business, it's God's business. I've learned at my age to mind my own business. Like I told you, this is almost nothing. It's God's business. It's so simple. Well, i got to take care of certain things. Like what? <laughs> like your heartbeat? Oh, there's a vital thing. <laughs> How about that? How about breathing? <laughs> you know, these are not optional features with human physiology, are they? Your vital signs operate <laughs> sometimes in spite of how we misuse them. I so much abused myself when I still, today, I still drive past the cemetery and feel like a no-show. I know where I belong. What are you laughing at? You feel the same way. What are you, special? You see that guy going like this, you do the same thing I You turn the other way. I know you. <laughs> I know you because I did the same thing you did. I'm older than you, so I beat you to it. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> it's that simple. Okay. I can't do that first step, Wally. Wally told me he never met a man who did a thorough first step that ever had any real trouble with the next 11. Nor have I. If I do a thorough first step, and my book says, concede to my innermost self that I am an alcoholic and of and by myself, there ain't much I can do about it. I'm powerless. When I pick up a drink, I'm powerless over telling you when I'm going to stop. The arresting officer can tell you. The committing physician can tell you. But I can't tell you when I'm going to stop. I am powerless over stopping. I stopped many times like you have. And when I'm stopped, I'm powerless over starting. So it makes no difference when I'm stopping or starting. I am in a perilous condition. Perilous is the factor that stays. Stopping and starting comes and goes, doesn't it? But perilous stays. And that's what our book says. We, find, we have to find the power. See? That will solve our problem. It don't say, make me smart enough to solve it without him. You remember that thinking? Then I don't need you guys? Well, I beat you through that lie too. I told that lie before you, and they have to listen to some of you somewhat better than you. <laughs> but it was still a lie. <laughs> What's our literature say? Our literature doesn't say that alcohol was the problem. It says lack of power was the problem, doesn't it? It doesn't say uh, lack of compassionate spouse was the problem. Could have said that. How about lack of competent attorney? That could be a problem. Lack of judge who is narrow-minded. <laughs> Lack of zealous officer. <laughs> Could have said all that stuff. 
thanks. <laughs> you die with alcoholic. I overlooked it. Obvious. <laughs> Excuse me, folks. Got a little tickle in my throat. Got a big tickle in my heart. <laughs> so, with the guidance of a sponsor who has experienced the steps in his or her life. These steps are quite simple and quite easy if you're beat up enough. If you're beat up enough. How do you know? That sounds awful harsh, Tom, for a fine, bright young lady like me. Well, my book says we get here under the lash of alcoholism. It don't say nothing about the light of Diogenes. That's how we get here. I sponsor guys, they go out and get drunk. I don't get excited about it. His buddy said, what happened to Harry? <laughs> He's a lash light. <laughs> we must concede to our innermost self. The light doesn't do that. The pain doesn't. Now, whether or not we can convert the pain to light is whether or not we turn our will and our lives over to God. First of all, when you're new, through a sponsor. Through a sponsor. You save a lot of time. Do a sponsor. And that's after you do what your sponsor does, then you will gather your own experience. And all you thought that is valuable will move from here to here, where you live. And the thing that does that in my life is action, not thinking, not understanding. Action. Taking actions I neither understand nor believe. Now, when you do things you neither understand or believe, you're trusting in something. That's a pretty good shot, ain't it? But if you only take actions that you understand and believe, then you're trusting only in self. Is that a reasonable statement? Well, at least you're trusting in self and maybe a few other things, but at least self is the top of the list. But when you do it and you don't understand it, you trust something greater than yourself. I do. It is my personal experience that faith is not enough for the fear that we come up, come up with. Our literature says it in a different way, although they proclaim faith is a great source and a great solver. But on certain pages, they say faith without works is dead. And dead principles really are not highly productive. <laughs> what I found for me, I have to develop trust. And trust, to me, is to have a faith and then take action on that faith. And that action moves that faith from here to here to trust. Trust in a power greater than myself. That's what it's really all about. It's powerful enough is it not true? Let's let's see how simple this really is based on a full experience like me. We were asked when we were new, and I, I was asked, same as you. Either God is everything or nothing, what is your choice to be? Remember the question? If your answer is yes, God is everything. What is all my fear? I gotta go to court tomorrow. 
I got ten warrants and all. Hell, I to tell you, they were. I was telling a couple of these ladies over here. I, I, when I was sober a few years, they asked me. A lady asked me to give her away at a wedding because she didn't have a father was dead. You know, I always wanted to give away a perfectly good woman. You know, so it was fun. I was, she was a fine woman. You know, so and she had a finicky. Uh, photographer, when I'm picking you guys, you know, and somehow or another I couldn't stand proper to suit him for this artsy kind of a guy. You see how artsy I am. Anyway, he's moving me here and turned you here this way. I said, I can't do it. He said, why? I said, the last time I'd had a pose for a picture, I got to be holding a number. Then I don't know how to do it. <laughs> that was my problem. I don't know how to do that. So, you got to go to court, and you're afraid you're going to spend some time. And you're afraid some of the other crap they hadn't cited you with yet might come up. <laughs> How does he know that? Because it happened to me. Oh, okay. <laughs> How does he know that? Now, what do I believe? I believe when I get in that courtroom, God is not there, don't I? The God I said that was everything and who was everywhere, I am now telling myself, God is not there. Is that a delusional statement? I think yes. It's contrary to the truth. So it might be a delusional statement. So if my fear is based on the acceptance of a delusional idea, then my fear is born in a delusion, is it not? Of course it is. What's the answer then? Practice the presence of God. You know you're practicing the presence of God when you pray, it's a local call. <laughs> That's how you know. Ain't somewhere out. <laughs> Doesn't it say we discover the great reality within? That's local. <laughs> That's local. How do we get this? The steps, working with others, prayer and meditation. Went to Wally. I can't pray, Wally. Ask me how I prayed. I was sober soon. And I says, well, I was telling God if he'd get me a new car, I could hire, drive some of his new drunks around to meetings, you know. He said, whoa, whoa, hold on, hold on. He says, you're trying to make a deal with God? I said, well, if you want to put it that way, Wally. He said, I'm the sponsor. I want to put it that way. I said those spiritual words, okay, Wally. <laughs> and he says to me, you're trying to make a deal with God to get you a car, and you're trying to con him, telling him that you're going to use that car to haul his other kids around. And he saw through my crap right away, you know. He says, you're trying to trade with God, Tom, don't you see that? He says, what do you have that God needs, Tom? And I'm like, nothing. He says, not only are you bad at praying, you're a poor businessman. You're trying to make a trade with God and you ain't got nothing offering. So I asked him for spiritual direction. What should I do, Wally? And he gave me a great spiritual treatise. Stop it. <laughs> That's it. Stop it. That's simple. Don't pray that way. 
I can't meditate, Wally. I try to sit in a yoga position. I threw my back out. I can't meditate. See, you watch too much TV, Tom. That's not meditation. Meditation has nothing to do with the position that you're in. It can be uh, inducive to meditation for some people. There's nothing wrong with that. But it has nothing to do with you with a bad back. You can meditate, Tom. No, I can't, Wally. I tried. I cannot meditate. He said, did you ever see a girl that you liked? Oh, yeah, I saw plenty of them. Did you ever think about that girl all day long? Uh, yeah, Wally, I did. That's meditation. Now, we're going to teach you how to change the subject. <laughs> but you know how to meditate. <laughs> Talk to your sponsor. Talk to your higher power. If you have a trouble there, I'll give you a deal like Wally gave me. You can talk to mine because I'm 100% certain he's big enough for all of us. All of us. No exceptions. Oh, you don't know some of the bad stuff I done, Tom. I'm a, I thought I was a terrific sinner, you know? <laughs> you do too, but you're wrong. How do you know I'm wrong? Because I was wrong. Oh, how were you wrong? Explain that to me, Tom. Well, then I'll do that. In order for you to commit a sin, three things got to happen. Now, a lot of you guys and gals like to think you were pretty good at sinning. Well, I'll tell you, you fail. You got to have at least 70% to pass sinning 101. Most of you only get about 34%. The requirement to pass sinning 101, it's got to be serious matter, number one. It's got to be sufficient reflection. And it's got to be full consent of the will. Now, I'll grant you serious matter. That gives you 33%. Did you ever know in your life an alcoholic who wanted to do something, whoever gave it sufficient reflection? <laughs> I haven't. If you know someone, get their autograph, because someday they're going to be famous, like Washington and Lincoln. I'd be ashamed to miss them, too. Full consent of the will. Have you ever known anybody under the delusion of ethyl alcohol or other mood-changing drugs who was ever able even to contribute full consent of the will? No. So you still only got 33, right? You need 70. So as far as sinning 101, you fail. I'm sorry. <laughs> you just can't make it. Now, I talked to the Zen truck driver. He liked it, but not as much as his plainness. He explained it to me. He says, I want you to go and check some of the things that God made. So I went out, he told me, to uh, Denver, got a four-wheel, went down and put my hand one of those 200-foot monoliths sitting up in the desert floor, you know, that's been worn around by ancient water and then wind later. 200 feet high, sort of rust-colored. I put my hand on the side of that sucker and looked up at that Nevada sky. Was it Colorado sky? Yeah. I'm bad on geography. But anyway, I knew the sky was up. And I was uh, putting my hand on it. And I said to myself, Tom, are you big enough to offend the power that made this stone monolith? And I looked at puny me in that big sky in that 200-foot stone monolith. I said, no way. I just ain't big enough. 
That don't mean the crap I did was all right, not at all. But I ain't big enough to offend the power who made that. And I gave a serious look at the Grand Canyon on the way back. I stopped to St. Louis and stuck my foot. I'm not, Thomas, they named me right. I stuck my foot in the damn Mississippi River down by the old piers. There was still renovation going on then. Say, Tom, are you big enough to offend the power that made this mighty Mississippi River? I looked at my pale, thin feet. The rest of me's fat, but the feet are thin. I got thin feet. Anyway, I looked down and I says, no way. No way. Then I come back and tell Wally. Wally says, let's get it simpler, Tom. Okay, Wally. He says, Tom, you can't even offend me without my permission, and I don't give it. Where you come off thinking you can offend the creator of the universe? Get out of here. You failed sinning again. What did I do? I cut myself off from the sunlight of the spirit. That is what my action produced. It's like you hanging up on your best girlfriend or boyfriend and cutting yourself off from help. That's what I did. That's how I see it for me. You, of course, God gave you free will to see it for yourself. But I beg you to give some serious thought to whether or not you can offend the power that made the Rocky Mountains, the Mississippi River, or that peculiar laugh in a child that they chuckle that made that kind of power and that kind of beauty. Ask yourself. Then answer yourself. That's why you'll probably avoid argument. <laughs> but do it. Do it now. I'm going to close with this. I could go on. But in AA, we respect time. And that's respect for you and me. We never know how we're touching other people. You know, the famous old saying we say, I was always hurt, I was hurt nobody but myself and all. We all said that lie, right? Well, my sister is a nun, Sheila Flynn. She's been a nun 40 years. She's a street nun. She, man, she was studying Eastern culture in Benares, India for eight years and all that stuff. She's taught in, uh, in uh, Paris, Rome, in uh, Bay Camo up in northern Canada. Oh, but she's worldly. But she's a straight line. She gets it honest. She told an old Spanish nun, Malegra was her name. She became, Malegra uh, became a nun when she was 18. And Malegra started to pray for me when Malegra was 90, 90 years old. In uh, Philadelphia is where she was hanging out that time. And uh, she prayed for me for 10 years. She was almost 100. And I got one year so, and I went to Philadelphia to thank Malegra. So Malegra never spoke English. She just knew me as Sister Sheila's brother, the drunk, which was a good description. That's what I am. I was her brother, and I am a drunk, <laughs> and I was drinking. So I go to thank him. She gets a little young nun to sit on a little footstool because she had the Afghan they put on the old people, like, you know. Where can I buy an Afghan? You know, never mind. Anyway, they're talking. And I told the young nun, 
tell Malika I'm here to thank her. I'm sober now in Alcoholics Anonymous for one year. I want to thank her for her prayers. The two nuns start talking, the young one and the old one. All of a sudden, they start crying. I'm an alcoholic. Well, I say to myself, what the hell have I done now? That's what we do. So the young nun starts to explain. She says, Malegra's been all over the world now for 82 years as a nun. And up until today, Malegra has simply thought that God forgot where she was for all the nuns she has been with that went home to the Father. And that's what she believed. Malegra says now today she no longer believes that. And the reason she no, no longer believes that. God does know where she is. And more importantly, God still hears her prayers. For Sister Sheila's brother, the drunk, is sober than a grace of alcoholics, a grace of her prayers, and Alcoholics Anonymous. And Alcoholics Anonymous is not AA World Services. Alcoholics Anonymous is you. I owe you my life. I owe you the quality of my living. I owe you gratitude for direction, purpose, and an unfailing power. I love you. Thank you.